listeners, and welcome to another episode of Extra Extra. It's all about whiskey. I remain your man in the host chair, Jason Johnson Yellen. And over there mm-hmm. on my video screen, mm-hmm. joining me, it's always wonderful to see you, especially when we record first thing on Monday mornings, Joshua Hatton. It's a pleasure, absolute pleasure to be here with you and with the listeners, Jason. On every episode of Extra Extra, Joshua and I come together, share a news story with one another. Oftentimes it focuses on the world of whiskey. We read it in the first half, we riff on it in the second half, and we try to get out of here in a tight 35. So, with that in mind, what are we talking about today, Joshua? Well, this was an article that broke, I think, the day we recorded our last Extra Extra episode. And so we missed it at that time, or or somewhere around there, right? And so we missed it at that time, but it was such big news It was such a gigantic article that we knew we had to cover it in this episode. And so you had sent me the link from winesearcher.com. And the headline just reads, U.S. Treasury pushes alcohol reforms. That's that's your header, Mm -hmm. right? That that grabs your attention. Then there's a subheader uh, which states, a just-published report in the U.S alcohol industry could be good news for consumers, but bad news for wholesalers. Mm. Now, this article was written on Thursday, 10th of February uh, by W. Blake Gray, G-R-A-Y. And it goes as such. Alcohol regulation in the U.S. and Europe is going in startlingly different directions. The U.S. is worried about lowering prices and increasing access while the EU is mulling ways to do the opposite. This became clear from a 63-page report issued Wednesday by the U.S. Treasury Department, the USTD. Last July, President Biden issued an executive order, quote, promoting competition in the American economy, end quote. As part of it, he asked Treasury to submit a report on the current state of competition in the alcohol industry. Can I just interject here for one second? Sure. When I first saw this story come out, I thought it was going to be the the TTB discussions that had been occurring, where there was an extended comments period Mm. about casks and types of casks and sizes of casks and and kind of doing business in in that realm to have this report filed by the u.s treasury who are in charge of ttb Mm. is huge and so i just wanted to drop that in here for our listeners especially if you're not in the u.s this is as high level as high level gets on a high level report can you Get the word high in there one more time. I I feel high right now. <laughs> <laughs> so please, I just wanted to, to make that crystal clear for everybody. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the most striking aspect of the report, to me, is how well Treasury knows what's really going on. Maybe my expectations <laughs> were too low for a federal report in a country where the largest barriers to competition are state laws not federal laws, 
right? And that is something you reiterate all the time. Mm-hmm. And our last episode where we were looking at, at Pennsylvania, last episode or two ago, we are looking at Pennsylvania saying, let's get government out of the alcohol business. Let's yeah. put this back in the hands of free trade capitalism. So this sentence... Chef's kiss. Yeah, but I don't know if your comment directly talks to what we were discussing in that previous episode because here it's talking about, yes, there are federal laws, but then there are individual state laws that can trump said federal laws. And those may or may not be um, directed by the state government or, or controlled by the state government, like control states like like Pennsylvania. Anyway, if we keep talking, we're going to run out of things to say in the second half. So I'm going to I'm going to take control back and I'm going to continue reading. Control. The people who put the report together for Treasury figured that out. Also, the most damaging consolidation and anti-competitive behavior is from distributors, not producers. Distributors come in for much of the reports Oh, this is a big one, Jason. <laughs> Approbrium. Approbrium. Approbrium? Approbrium? Approbrium. Is that the, the black poop that comes out of babies the first time they have a poop? <laughs> That's meconium, Jason. That's meconium. Good gosh. Anyway, so now, now we... I uh, thought that was the thing that destroyed Superman's superpowers. <laughs> Well, no, C was the black kryptonite that made Superman evil, uh, as evidenced in Superman 2? Superman 3? The one where he goes drinking Uh, all the Johnny Walker? Do you remember? I don't know, but it certainly takes away a new parent's superpowers when that thing comes out. But anywho, back to your control. Yeah, yeah. so this next paragraph starts with a quote. It reads, The report is, I'm sure sending shudders throughout the halls of the major wholesalers, said beverage alcohol attorney John Hinman. The quote continues, This is a big deal. It provides ammunition to the reformers of the industry. This is a direct message to the states because the concentration at the producer level and the wholesale level has really stifled competition for wine and spirits, end quote. The other striking aspect from Mm. a global perspective is the assumption that access to more types of alcoholic beverages at lower prices is a good thing. Plus, there's an early observation that if state governments want to lower alcohol consumption for public health reasons through higher prices, quote, states may be able to achieve these aims through higher taxes and thus benefit the public treasury rather than the private intermediaries, end quote, i.e. distributors. The report takes aim at a number of state practices that the federal government may not actually be able to do anything about, notably the practice in, quote, franchise states of requiring alcohol producers to stay with one distributor indefinitely unless the wine or distillery can show, quote, good cause for ending the arrangement. The practical effect in the franchise state, like Georgia, is that a winery has no real recourse if a distributor decides to push other products. Its only path into Georgia wine shops is blocked. 
It's a nightmare. Absolute nightmare. We will be discussing that in yeah, the second half. Yeah, yeah. total garbage laws. Anyway, uh, <laughs> did I say that out loud? I sure as fuck hope I did. Anyway. <laughs> Talk about five shadowing. <laughs> you left foreshadowing your dust there. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll find out what Joshua thinks about this in the second half. <laughs> the next uh, paragraph starts with a quote. Quote, state franchise laws tend to increase the producer's cost of obtaining distribution services from distributors, which, in turn, are likely to increase the cost of distribution, the report says. Quote continues, these laws have the effect of encouraging opportunism by distributors, thereby increasing the cost of producing and inhibiting the growth of craft producers. Such laws make it easier for the largest producers to defend their dominant positions, likely lead to higher prices for consumers, and reduce the variety of products available to consumers in those states, end quote. That is a quote and a half, man. Yeah. So th there's a chunk of this article in the center that's just entitled Beer Barons. <laughs> and I guess for the, 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 the sake of trying to hit our 35-minute mark, you may have a, a sentence in, or two in here you want to return to, but I would suggest to our listeners, go check out the article, read that bit. We, we want to just kind of move on to the, to the nitty-gritty. Do you agree with that, Jason? A hundred percent, yeah, especially given the title of the, the next segment. Next segment title, what next? This brings up the big question about the report. What, if anything, will happen because of it? Treasury is the agency that runs the TTB, Alcohol Tax and Trade Bureau, which creates most federal regulations on alcohol. The TTB is in charge of wine labels, as well as beer labels and and liquor labels. Uh, so if Treasury wants changes, it can make them happen. But the federal government has little power to supersede state alcohol laws because the 21st Amendment that repealed prohibition left considerable power to the states. So it can complain about franchise states and post and hold, but it can't change them, which is personally upsetting. Not personally, it's just upsetting. Anyway. It also can't convince the state to dump the three-tier system in which all sales from producers to retailers are required to go through a profit-taking wholesaler, unlike in most industries where, say, a clothing company can sell shirts directly to retail stores. The report does aim at the distributor Sacred Cow, saying this toward the end, quote, state legislatures might consider if the benefits of the three-tiered system outweigh its costs to competition and study markets without a three-tiered system. And that ends the quote there. Uh, but continues, just, just really a paragraph and a half left here. Beverage and alcohol attorney Sean O'Leary, who frequently works on cases involving direct shipping, believes the report can be influential at the state level. Interesting. Quote, it gets the debate going, O'Leary told Wine Searcher. Maybe the small craft organizations start going to state legislatures and saying, quote, we have a problem. 
maybe this lends credibility to the fact that this is a problem. The stuff they talked about, it needed to be talked about. Small producers complain about this all the time. The franchise rules are not just archaic, they are terrible. <laughs> I agree with you, Mr. O'Leary. <laughs> I've never seen anything more anti-competitive in a capitalist country. Now that this is out there in a federal report, they've lent a lot of credibility to the issues. And that both ends the quote and ends the article. Let's take a quick little midway breather. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to cover in the second half. second half of Extra Extra, Joshua Hatton, you and I are rolling up our sleeves here. We're going to cover franchise states. Mm -hmm. We're going to cover this first shake of the three-tier system. But before we do those two things, I want to circle back to you and I agreed the Beer Baron segment talked about a couple of things that that we weren't going to get into in this episode mm -hmm. but there are a couple of paragraphs in the middle that that I wouldn't mind just presenting to the listener here it says sometimes the report gets very specific on how much certain laws cost post and hold which you mentioned in the what next segment of wine searcher yeah Post and hold regulations in states like your beloved Connecticut require distributors to post prices and not reduce them for a certain length of time. The intent is to reduce consumption by keeping prices higher. Mm -hmm. Most of these laws were written in dun, da, 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 the immediate <laughs> aftermath of prohibition when reducing consumption was a primary goal. Something else we'd heard back in the episode where we covered uh, the, the Pennsylvania situation, where they were saying buying alcohol is a massive pain in the arse. Mm -hmm. And it was meant to be a pain in the arse because it was coming out the back of prohibition. Yeah. You weren't meant to just easily walk into a store and pick up the demon drink. So the fact that that continues to echo in the immediate aftermath of prohibition. And then some numbers, given that more, this is a quote, given that more than $250 billion of alcohol was sold in the United States in 2018, for example, even modest price increases in these states as a result of post and hold laws can lead to a substantial transfer of wealth from consumers to distributors and or producers, the report says. The quote continues, according to one estimate, post and hold restraints may increase the price of a bottle of wine by 39 cents to $1.10, the price of a six pack of beer by 93 cents to $2.24, and the price of a bottle of spirits by $2.03 to $6.87. Mm -hmm. That's that's significant. Yeah. 
and, and just to give just to give an example, and, and this is about beer, in the beer market alone, that price increase would reduce consumer surplus by two hundred forty-two to five hundred eighty-one million dollars, of which two hundred thirty-six to five hundred sixty-seven million dollars would be transferred to producers while consumers would spend 147 to 478 million dollars more than they did previously the US treasury is talking huge numbers here in the alcohol industry and that was one example from the beer world yeah. holy macaroni so so I just wanted to make sense of the post and hold that yep. got mentioned in the what next. So two two points to, to focus on the rest of this half. Number one, the franchise states, where we believe you have an opinion. I most certainly have an opinion as well. And then this shake, first shake of the three-tier system. So franchise states, could you articulate it a little bit? Because I know that you... You see this up close and personal. Can you articulate that for the for the listeners? Well, the fact of the matter is, a franchise state, of which there are many, right? They mentioned Georgia, Connecticut's a franchise state, Massachusetts is a is a franchise state. But even amongst the pools of franchise states, the laws change uh, here mm. and there. And the idea with a franchise state is, let's say you are Glen Whiskey and your importer wants to get your whiskey into Georgia. We'll use the example of Georgia. Wants to get you in there and we know Glen Whiskey's making a fantastic product. We know that the importer's doing a great job and the distributor gets this into their portfolio. Fantastic news. Now... All of a sudden, uh, Beam Suntory decides, I'm just pulling names out of the sky, please do not get litigious. Uh, Beam Suntory decides they want to change distribution and and uh, they want to start bringing new products into Georgia. Oh, and let's say Lafroig never existed in Georgia before. That distributor who had Glen Whiskey and now starts selling Lafroig can start ignoring Glen Whiskey if they want to, because Lafroig is ringing the cash register. And in the end, the salespeople are going to sell the stuff that makes them money. It just makes sense. You go for the low-hanging fruit. You sell the stuff that makes you money. And when previously you were selling Glen Whiskey because it was a great product, they had a great importer, they gave you the support, now you've got a huge brand name. I'm going to sell the brand name because I could just go and take orders. I don't have to hand sell it. Well, that's not good for Glen Whiskey, who still has the same great people making the same great product and the same great importers importing that same great product. Now that brand is stuck. And so you'd go to the distributor and you say, look, we understand you've got, you've got this larger brand now. That's perfectly fine. Um, you know, we're not a fit anymore. That's cool. We'd like to take the brand somewhere else. That distributor has every right to say, sorry, I'm not going to let you go. And you'd, say, you'd mm -hmm. say, well, why would they want to keep the brand if they're not going to do anything with it? 
because they can keep that brand and use it as a bargaining chip to trade brands with other distributors. Meanwhile, you're stuck in limbo. You can't do anything in that state. Now, in some states, you're you're allowed to do what's called dueling, where you do have a distributor on record that could be, you know, Joe's Distribution, ABC, and they've done exactly what this Georgian distributor has done. Again, we're we're making up names here, right? We're just we're just throwing some scenarios out there, and you could say, okay. Um, we're not working so well with this distributor anymore, but we will start selling to another distributor that we think will do a good job. And you say, well, that, that's great. Your problems are solved. Your problems are not solved because <laughs> legally that first distributor has every right to continue purchasing that product, that Glen Whiskey, from the importer and it would be illegal for that importer to say no to that distributor. And if that distributor really wanted to, let's say you sold them a chunk of product early on, right? Let's say you sold them 1,000 cases and 250 cases into that purchase, they brought on that larger distillery. If they wanted to, if you pissed them off or whatever, they can say, you know what, screw it. And they dump the product into the market. And now you have a bottle that should have been 70 bucks on a shelf, and they'll make it so that bottle is $40 on a shelf. They could do whatever the hell they want. And you'd say for the consumer, that's fantastic news because now the <laughs> consumer can get a really good bottle of Glen Whiskey at a really good price. But you're talking about consumers that know things and the fact of the matter is most consumers don't really know things they're not into it like you and I are yeah. like our listeners are yeah. and so the majority of people would say something's wrong with that brand if you know if it's so cheap they've you know they've discounted it so much something must be going on and that ruins the reputation of the brand so franchise states create really awkward positions for importers, for producers, uh, both both on our shores and, and off our shores. Now, I just presented worst case scenarios. Indeed. Truth be told, I think most distributors out there, they're going to be good people. And you'll be able to negotiate something. But it's not uncommon to say, we want to buy your brand back. Right, because they do have that right to trade it to another distributor to get mm -hmm. another brand or something like that. So, so it really, you know, it, they can be handcuffs to to a brand, which which is scary. And then, really quickly, um, to the state of Connecticut, and and talking about some of these post and hold numbers here, and I, and I don't know if I'm using this example properly, but you know. Connecticut is also a franchise state, but they also have a different price posting law that makes selling brands within Connecticut non-competitive compared to surrounding states. So in Connecticut, if a store wants to buy, a wants to start selling Glen Whiskey, they mm -hmm. can buy a bottle of Glen Whiskey from the distributor at 50 bucks, and they'll put it on their shelves for 75, again, just pulling numbers. 
But if they wanted to really promote the brand, they couldn't just buy 24 cases of it, get a price discount, and then sell it for a better price like you would in states like New York and and a few other surrounding states where you can get case discounts. A retailer's cost per bottle is different than their cost per case, is different than their cost per three cases and six cases and so on. And this is what our competing states have around Connecticut. But in Connecticut, you're, you're screwed. We're what's called a bottle state where you can- The go, price is right, the price. The price is, is the price. price is the price. And, and that is detrimental to growth, in my opinion. And one- uh, one additional observation there as well is is when Glen Whiskey comes into Connecticut, its label needs to be registered in the state of Connecticut, regardless of where else that label is registered. Mm-hmm. And so if you were going to send a small allocation of product into Connecticut, you'd have to factor in the label registration along with this bottle price that you're describing. Correct. And it's not just a registration process where you're filling out paperwork. It's $200 per label. So here we are, a single cask nation, bottling a single cask at a time. And I live in Connecticut. And sadly, a lot of single cask nation doesn't get into Connecticut because financially it doesn't make sense. If we're just sending in a case or two into Connecticut, $200 profit is gone from from Impex's, you know, from the margin they need to make to grow as an importer. And so why would they want to register my whiskeys into Connecticut? Of course, Sam was always, you know, Joshua, if there's something you want in Connecticut, please make that happen and we'll figure it out in the end. You know, he's, he's just a mensch, right? But for take single cast nation out of the equation and you're dealing mm-hmm. with some special limited edition or, or whatever, Connecticut simply doesn't have access to a lot of the specialty stuff that our surrounding states do because we have to pay $200 to get a label registered. Meanwhile, you could just, you don't have to worry about that in New York or Massachusetts or Rhode Island. Yeah, yeah it's, it's always surprising to me to hear that as as I've mentioned sitting here in Virginia which is a state controlled uh, liquor board and we don't get a lot of the special things um, again because if you're not filling huge volumes there's no point processing the paperwork in the state of Virginia I was going to make one final comment about franchise states and then we'll we'll transition over to the three-tier system but one other avenue that's open to a distributor in a in a franchise state is if you take a chance on an unnamed brand, you could put no efforts into it. You would hold it. You would hold the rights to it. You wouldn't have to spend any money building it. And you could wait for that brand to blow up in other states. Mm-hmm. And now you've been sitting on a successful brand that you put no time or effort or money into. And so there's a little bit of the speculating going on there where you say, well, yeah, I'll bring in your brand, yeah. And then you get no support. Mm. Meanwhile, other states are busting their hump, doing the hard work on growing it. 
and then it becomes successful. You're still with the same distributor. They get to reap the benefits of that. Perhaps it now becomes a very valuable trading chip yeah. for them. It's a very interesting aspect of the business that exists separate from producers and importers. It, it always fascinates me. So, And I do. I, I like the disclaimer you throw in, which is, we are pitching out worst case scenarios here. We are yes. putting out doomsday projections. The vast majority of distributors work their tails off, mm -hmm. represent brands, do terrific jobs. Yes. Kudos yes, yes, yes. to you, yep. which I'm going to use to transition here. <laughs> Round about the time this came out, you and I were speaking to, to Brett and Orlin at Woodenville, mm -hmm. and we will have them coming up in a future episode of One Nation Under Whiskey. And I'd asked them, you know, they, they were two of the first people in the industry. I was able to ask, what do you think of this, this U.S. Treasury kind of shaking the foundation of the three-tier system? And their very first response was, again, speaks to the disclaimer we just made, we have been well served by our distributors yep. in a range of states. And while direct-to-consumer sales are good and important and valuable. The states where we are represented by our partners in distribution, they're doing the heavy lifting for us. Mm. We can't be in all the states we want to be pitching our products and they are doing good, good work. So I, I wanted to get that perspective in there from industry. Yeah. Because I know that when when I look at it and, and we look at it as independent bottlers coming in through our importer, our importer is hugely, hugely important to us. And we have a, a, a bang on relationship with our importer. But you have relationships all the way down that line. Mm -hmm. And in a three-tier system, you end up with four distinct relationships, which are importer, distributor, retailer, consumer. You need four distinct conversations yeah. happening there to be successful. And if one of those becomes problematic, all of them become problematic. The success of the enterprise becomes problematic. And there is a little bit of me looks at the three-tier system and thinks it's too many tiers. How do we get some tiers out of there and tighten up these relationships we're building? And so I'm, I'm curious to hear you speak to that. Well, two things. I, I want to clarify something you said, uh, where you said it's, it's importer, distributor, retailer, consumer. It's really mm -hmm. importer slash producer, right? Because whether an importer brings sure. uh, you know, sure. something from out of country, it's the producer that also needs to sell to a distributor that also needs to sell to a retailer and so sure. on. Sure. So I understand your desire to to maybe trim a little bit of the route to consumer, right? I, I, I get that. However, the more I think back to our conversations with David Stirk, 
where he talks about how incredibly important it is to have the right distributors and right retailers and right importers in place. It was the only way he could grow his business. And for us as business owners, for us as bottlers, I really like that we have a phenomenal importer that has established the right distributor contacts who works with the correct retailers, right? We're not going to work for every shop. Mm -hmm. And those Mm -hmm. retailers have the correct consumers that are going to purchase our product. It, It takes a team to sell one of our bottles. 100%. There's no doubt about that. So... Am I a proponent for keeping the three-tiered system in place? I am 100% a proponent for that. However, I am even more so a proponent from removing all of these ridiculous state laws and coming up with a federal system that works for all 50 states. And the obstacle there is going to be just like it always is, how is that state going to figure out the state taxes that will come through? Mm -hmm. That's going to be something to figure out. But I don't think we could or should get rid of the three-tiered system in the U.S. I think it's very important for our market, in part because of how ginormous our country is. And, you know, we have 350 million people here, right? It's you need an army of people to sell all of these products, be it spirit, wine, or, or beer. So I'm a proponent, but we need to have a better system that doesn't date back to the fucking 30s. It is 2022, <laughs> and we're all adults, and we all understand things. And you know, it's re- I'm, I'm going to get talky here, right? I, I think I think to Kevin Obis, who is our and, and Elijah, right? Kevin Obis is our Impex guy in Washington State. Elijah is our SCN guy, also living in Washington State. And when we sell a bottle or bottles into that state, if we're using Macker Bay, Kilhoman Macker Bay as an example, around the country, it should be 55 bucks, maybe 60 bucks. In Washington State, it's $85, it's $90, and it has to do with these weird antiquated taxes and actually a a redo on taxes because they were a they were a um a state run liquor sales state and now now it's private they've totally mucked it up My, my, my point is to have an overarching simple tax system that would allow us to to simplify the three tiered system i think that's the goal well i think to bring this episode full circle is to have a federal report that, as the author Blake Gray pointed out here, the federal government, the Treasury, has a really good handle on what's happening at the state level mm-hmm. and, and is now starting to ask the question, should we continue with the system we've got in place at the state level? <sighs> It will be very interesting and why I thought it was so important to cover this story. It's going to be really interesting to see where states' rights, people fall on this this issue. Mm -hmm. When the question of 
capitalism is <laughs> at right. the heart of this. <laughs> and so will will we have a movement to federal control? Will we get 50 identical laws on how booze is sold in the United States? And as you rightly say, not on the back of fucking prohibition and the 1930s response to that. Yeah, I... Uh just as you were saying, that conflict between states' rights and a capitalist country. I think of that meme of the guy with his hat and he's sweating and he's got one button that says states' rights and another mm. button that says capitalism. Like, which which one do you press here? <laughs> I think we just found the masthead for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> All right, let, let's get out of here. This. I also want to say, dear listener... What you just said a moment ago about Macrobay and $85 and how it looks in other states around, that's the exact conversation you and I had completely without recording equipment. The day that I shared this with you over text and we started chatting, we designed Extra Extra to be a real conversation that we have with one another. Yeah. And today you have absolutely made that point crystal clear. So... I'm really excited about that. So if you want to reach out to us, questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com. No Ian Whiskey. If you want to get real crazy, send us an email at info at singlecastnation.com. We always love hearing from you. We always talk about the emails that come in. Sometimes we put them into the next episode. Sometimes we don't. That's a little roll of the roulette wheel for you. Spin <laughs> of the roulette wheel. There you go. Don't roll your roulette wheel down a hill. It'll just end badly. <laughs> yeah, Let's get out of here on that. that nonsense. Thank you, Joshua. Always enjoyed the conversation. Likewise. And thank you, listeners. Always appreciate you tuning in to hear what the latest story is. Until next time, peace. Peace indeed. Peace indeed.